0: Bill Ludlow, thank you so much for coming on to talk beliefs all the way from Arizona. So before we make a start, can you just give us a little bit, a bit of information about yourself and your background?
1: Sure. I'm 54 years old. Um, I uh, was in retail for most of my life, about 25 years. Um, grew up in Lansing, Michigan. Um, and, uh, went to Michigan state university, completed three years, but there were a lot of things going on at the time. It's a long story. I never did uh, finish, but I, I did study, uh, anthropology and geology there for three years. Um, and then, um, just, you know, when I was in college, that was really when I first heard of this creation versus evolution controversy, um, up until then I'd never knew there was such a thing. Um, but, but with some friends of mine's roommates that were creationists, we ended up started talking about, about it. And they're talking about a 6,000 year old earth and I'm, you know, wow. So I guess it just kind of, I got interested in it at that time. Um, and then with the, the internet, um, in the mid nineties, um, you know, I, I got my first got online in like 1995 and, um, you know, just in surfing around the internet, I come across uh, different um, forums, message boards, that kind of thing where people were talking about creationism. So uh, I guess I that was when I first heard of Kent Hovind and people like that, Ken Ham and stuff. And uh, oh, yeah. again, yeah. I was just, you know very interested in kind of finding out why these people believe the way they do. So it's been an interest of mine for a long time. Um, right now I'm, I guess, semi-retired. I, I, I work about 15 hours a week. Um, I volunteer at the Arizona museum of natural history one or two days a week and uh, mainly interacting with children there. Um, Or along with their parents, you know, we get a lot of kids in during the school year um, where they'll come in on field trips and and things like that. This time of year in the summer, it's just mostly small groups and parents and that. But uh, they really didn't have anyone um, doing anything with human evolution there. There's no permanent display. So they had put together something with the... you know seven or eight different skulls and the information on it and stuff and and so i've just kind of expanded on that down there um and I've trained now other people. We have a couple other people doing it, so we have most of the days of the week covered now. Um,
0: you're the but, human origins expert, aren't you, at the uh, Arizona Natural History?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I'm in charge of training other people on the human origins cart that we have. Uh, they call it a cart, but I mean, it's basically a table that we set up in that for in uh, the origins gallery, which is um, uh, where they talk about. You know they have the displays and that about evolution in the museum. So, um, you know I'm in, I, I'm kind of in charge of training the other people and that there and and uh, coordinating that. So, yeah.
0: right, okay. Well, first off, Bill, you live in the USA, of course, which mm-hmm. has a heavy creationist presence and ranks pretty low in the world in terms of acceptance of the evolution. Um, in 2006, a survey placed the U.S. nearly at the last place in the world with only Turkey being less accepting of evolution. So do you think that acceptance of evolution in America is still pretty poor or are things starting to get better?
1: I think it's getting better. Absolutely. Um, you know, they show the trend, but it's, it's just slightly, I mean, it's not a a big trend. I think that's going to change. I think probably, um, as as the the next generation grows up and uh i i think that there's going to be a lot more acceptance of evolution i i do think it's changing um but you've got the evangelical you know element out there in the united states which is much stronger than it is in in a lot of other countries and those are the people that are are rejecting it for religious reasons so
0: It doesn't fit in with their Bible, and so, therefore, it can't possibly be true under any circumstance.
1: Right. Yep. Yep. So, definitely.
0: And uh, what really seems to be the most incendiary topic for religious people is the human origins question, that Mm -hmm. present-day humans evolved from lower primates. So, what exactly do you think bothers creationists so much about the idea that we evolved?
1: Well, I I think it's because it's personal, you know, I mean, it's, we're talking about humans. Um, You know, it's one thing to say, you know, this animal over here or this plant over here changed over time and, and uh, um, you know, started out as something else, but it's another thing when they're talking about us. And I think that's, that's it. They take it personally. Um, You know, the Bible says that, that uh, we are created in God's image and that doesn't jive with what the Bible says. I mean, um, you know, they, again, you could look at plants, animals, anything else. A lot of people will accept that, but they don't accept humans because it it just goes against what they've been taught, you know, what they've been brought up to believe.
0: Yeah, so, so they will, in some cases, uh, you'll have uh, religious people who will accept the evolution, except they will, they will draw the line at the human evolution parts. Oh, no, no, we do not come from animals. We're not animals, and we certainly aren't. Right. Even a lot
1: of old earth creationists are that way. You know, definitely, you know, they, they accept everything else, but then basically when it comes to humans, that's where they draw the line.
0: Yeah. Well, Bill, recently you took part in an excellent online debate uh, with a well-known creationist, apologist, Kent Hovind about the evidence for human evolution. I uh, encourage everyone to see that. I will put a link actually below. Oh, thanks. You can check that out. Um, anybody who saw it, of course, will remember that he didn't even so much as bend on uh, any of the evidences that you presented. So the thing is, he's very arrogant at times, Bill, even saying things like, you know, I'll use small words so that you can understand. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. I had to bite my tongue oh. that debate over and over and over. Um, that was, uh, yeah. I mean, he took some shots at me. Um, you know, I, I, I just tried not to go there and he tried to change the subject too. I mean, he, he just, um, you know, he wanted to, to, to bring it morality, um, and definitely, you know, tried to, to change the subject. There were a couple of moments during the debate, um, where he got really upset, um, I remember, <laughs> and, and one of them was, let me see if I can bring that, uh, that slide up here. Um, one of them was I, I put the slide up and I, I did it a little early. You know, I, I, I should have waited just, just until I started talking. But if you can see that there, um, this, uh, this mammoth thing. And once he saw that slide come up, we were started talking about carbon dating. I mean, you could tell he's like, he, he did not want to go there because he knew he was wrong. He knows that that information he's presented you know, for 20 years is wrong, that uh, wasn't the same mammoth, you know, um, and, and uh, he got that information probably from, from uh, you know, other, Walt Brown had been using this, and he, re- he, he references Walt Brown in this slide, but on some of his other slides, he references the original source, but, yeah, he just did not want to go there. Um, he saw it coming, and, and boy, he just didn't want to talk carbon dating. Well, then he didn't even understand carbon dating. He kept asking me, you know, if we carbon dated ourselves, well, we can't carbon date ourselves. You know, I mean, we, we just went through this whole thing over and over about, you know, something has to be dead 100 years. And he would say, but if we did, it's like, well, why? I mean, <laughs> it's not <laughs> going to give us an accurate result. Um, there are some slides that you didn't see and ready to go. This is one, um, where yeah, know, he, he, he kind of talked about uh, over and over. He talks about, um, bones in the dirt. You can't tell everything. You can't tell anything. It's just you, all you can tell is something died. Well, here he is talking about Homo Naledi, um, in 2015 and talking about how we can tell from the hip bones that it. You know, walked upright. Well, there you go, Ken. I mean, they're right there. You're telling us that uh, you definitely can more. You know, know more than uh, than something died. You know, you can tell a lot about it. Um, I did mention during the debate once maybe twice about you know people who believe the earth is 6000 years old and people rode dinosaurs and i was waiting for him to dispute that cuz ken ham will dispute that he says that but if you notice ken ham has books out that show people riding dinosaurs um you know children's book the uh, um dinosaurs of eden um and and here kent hoven in one of his slides shows someone riding a dinosaur you know and so um you know i was definitely ready ready for that if he uh came out but there was you know while he was doing his rebuttal i was um i was at that time going through different slides and trying to be prepared you know (laughs) that i had pre prepared so um i did miss some opportunities i made a couple mistakes um he asked me about carbon dating he said uh What was it? You know, could it be inaccurate? And I just kind of brushed it off. But I mean, yeah, it can be inaccurate. And he showed that uh, to us. You know, if you use the method wrong, you will get bad results every time. So, um, you know, that was a missed opportunity there. But uh, and if I, you know,
0: use carbon dating, like your your normal carbon dating that they use on things up to fifty thousand years old. I mean, you're not going to use that on something which you suspect to be millions of years old,
1: right? Right. If
0: you Use potassium uh, argon dating or something similar. Is that right?
1: Yes, yeah, and, and those methods, uh, the K-A-R, the, the potassium-argon method um, is used. It's the most popular method. It has been for 50 years now, but there's also the argon-argon, the 40 to 39, and that one doesn't rely on a parent-daughter relationship. The, you, you, don't, you don't have to ra- ratio. You don't have to know that initially to do it. In fact, you can use that to determine the parent-daughter ratio that it was initially. So we'll use that to cross-check. The potassium-argon dating, um, you know, I, I think I brought that point up in in the Hadar region and kubi fora and those areas. Um, you know, they've dated over two hundred layers, volcanic layers, and and even in between, they have magnetic reversals and things that they use to cross check all that. So, I mean, it, it's been dated using multiple methods, you know, and not just one method either. I mean, they use both both the different uh, KAR and the ARAR methods to cross check it. So. Um, I brought up a couple other dating methods too, that, um, they've used for homo naledi and, and, uh, uh, was, uh, also the, the ones in Spain in the cave there, uh, caves are difficult to do, but you know, they've, they use other methods that don't rely on any initial parent daughter ra- ratio. And that's what Kent really harps on. You don't know when you started. So, um, but he didn't go there. He just kind of, I guess he realized wasn't a good way, wasn't a good thing to keep going with you know <laughs> so yeah. he didn't go there you know.
0: i mean yeah. the, how i understand this is it's like uh they will date the the uh the soil above and below the the fossil that they found and then do an average is that, well
1: right? they date wherever we can date so you know um and typically it's going to be above or below but whatever layers are datable. so your sedimentary layer itself may not be dateable but as far as with a um you know, absolute method that they call it, you know, like the radiometric dating. So we find volcanic layers in there um, where we can date and then using the law of superposition in between, they're going to assign relative ages to it, relative Mm -hmm. dating. So,
0: yeah. Right, Bill, do you think, um, getting back to our friend Kent Hovind, do you think apologists like him really believe what they're, what they're spouting or is it, is, do they have some other agenda? Do you think?
1: You know, I definitely think they have an agenda. I mean, that's how they're making their living. So I like to call them creationism salesmen um, rather than uh, evangelists or whatever. Um, you know, you look at Ken Ham, you look at Ken Hovind. I mean, that's, that's their living. Um, do they believe it? You know, I, I think some of them do. I think some of them don't. I have a really hard time believing that Eric Hovind, um, kent 's son I, he just doesn 't seem sincere. I mean he just repeats things other people say it 's not like he seems like he 's really ever studied it himself he He repeats what his father says he
0: repeats it's a family her, business isn 't it
1: yeah, he repeats what Russ Miller says about geology he repeats other people 's things and and there 's just not much sincerity there, you know. Um, He's got his Genesis 3D movie coming out now, but he's begging for funding to get it in theaters. They've been working on it for four or five years. Um, You know, every year they come out and beg for money for something. Um, He was just slapped by the FDA yesterday. I don't know if you heard about that, but for selling uh, B17, vitamin B17 on his website um, as a cure for cancer. Oh, cool. So he was slapped. Uh, the, the letter was published. Um, Steve McCrae did a hangout about it. I saw it all over the internet. Um, you know, uh, they they sent him a basically like a cease and desist letter. You know, do you, you you know you can't do this. I mean, it's a violation of the law to to promote vitamin B seventeen as a, a cure for cancer, which is what they have been doing so um but yeah i I, you know certain certain creationists i think probably believe it other ones you know it's hard it's somebody like a especially the geologists like a steve austin or andrew snelling these guys are trained and and they have degrees in geology and yet here they're out there talking about how the earth is six years a thousand years old they're using their knowledge of geology to skirt around you know what we know um, instead of um, instead of you know explaining it on real geological terms, I mean, um, I have a real hard time believing somebody like a Snelling or a an Austin um, believes what they 're saying I, I think they 're doing it as a business definitely so wow stay with us we 'll be right back. Hi, and welcome to His and Tell, a cat podcast where we delve deep into the fascinating world of feline behavior with your host, me, Christina Wilson, a professional animal behaviorist. Each episode features insightful discussions with leading veterinarians, dedicated researchers and scientists, experts in cat behavior and training, and so much more. Join me as we decode the complexities of pet loss, unravel the mysteries of feline health and behavior, and discover the latest research findings. I'll meet you at Hiss & Tell.
0: Uh, I recently interviewed uh, Dr. Zach Moore on this subject, Mm -hmm. um, and I asked him about the practical uses for evolution, everyday uses. um, What, in your opinion, are the most important practical uses for evolution, uses that everyone has benefited from and continues to benefit from, including...
1: Yeah, other than, obviously, medical benefits, you know, as far as uh, um, understanding um, how how viruses change, um, understanding how hereditary diseases are caused, you know, by studying mm-hmm. evolution, um, the med- medical end of it there. But, you know, things like agriculture, I mean, um, a lot of that, of course, is is not natural selection, it's artificial selection, but it's still following the same uh, type of evolutionary pattern. So we've got agriculture, um, conservation is another thing, uh, you know, things are evolving and in order to know how we're going to have further conservation in the future, we need to know how things are, where they're coming from. So, um, I guess that's, that's a, a way to put it. And and with human evolution too, I mean, again, it's just, uh, we need to know where we came from to know where we're going and be able to predict where we're going. Um, mm-hmm. uh, if, if we think we popped in existence, and, uh, a couple thousand, a few thousand years ago, and, and we're waiting to be raptured (laughs) soon. It's always soon. It's always coming, you know, then, I, I mean, there's just no, um, there's no reason for people to really take care of, uh, the problems we have today. But if we realize that we're a product of evolution and that we're a product of our environment, um, you know, climate change is an issue and and if we realize we're a problem we're a product of our environment that we need to do more to save our environment you know and to uh uh, for future generations so um i just think you you can't see the whole picture unless you understand evolution and you understand deep time and and you know where we're coming from
0: and uh i can just imagine anyone Watching this, who is a creationist, they would say, "Oh, you're talking about microevolution, you know, which is
1: totally mm-hmm. different."
0: There's no such thing as macroevolution, which takes place <laughs> over, as you said, deep time, millions of years. I mean, this is another, another thing which I get a lot. So, I mean, yeah. I mean, am I right in saying that macroevolution is just microevolution over a longer? period of time
1: absolutely yeah and i tried to there was one slide i brought up um during the presentation that showed a row of skulls an angle but you know australopithecus is on one end and modern humans is on the other end and i had i had you know on there says micro evolution micro 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 and that's exactly what it is if you look at each one next to each other well, yeah, that's just microevolution, but but when you start over here and you end over here, there's no disputing that we have a change of kind, you know, as creationists would call it. Um, we we went from Australopithecus to human, and and but but I think one of the problems with the creationists is they just if you if you believe the Earth is six thousand years old, you don't have that concept of deep time. You, you know, a million years is a long time. Four million years is a real long time you know, four billion years is oh, yeah. is hard to even conceive. So,
0: yeah. yeah. Oh, Lord. Well, Bill, you, of course, uh, belong to a lot of great organizations. You are the human origins expert at the Arizona Museum of Natural History. And, of course, you also run the website, Creation Science Fiction. So what projects are you working on at the moment that you can tell us about?
1: Okay. Um, yeah, let me show you a couple of things. In fact, I kind of uh, meant to bring this up when um, – when we were talking about uh the things i like to do so um i have a, <laughs> I have quite a um let's see here let me find i'm working on the there we go um i have quite a, a collection of fossils um huge you know fossil collection rocks um i have stuff uh uh Like, I have practically every layer of the Grand Canyon, but, of course, they weren't collected at the Grand Canyon. There's a lot of places in Arizona where you can collect the same layers. Um, And and I kind of collect animals, too. (laughs) I have a – my girlfriend calls it the zoo museum in my living room. This is part of my setup here. I have, uh, I think, 14 now terrariums and aquariums, um, lots of different – Lots of different animals and things there. There's little poison dart frogs. Uh, I've got a couple different species of those guys. Um, This is taken in my living room right here, this picture with uh, a red-eyed tree frog. That's a little armadillo lizard. Um, There's some corals in a saltwater aquarium and that, different different things. Uh, Fossils. This is a dinosaur coprolite from a a camarasaur. Dinosaur poo. uh, Yep, dinosaur poop right there. So i got a big, big chunk of those. I picked up that at the uh, Tucson, uh, huge show down in Tucson every year, the Tucson Gem and Mineral Show. Um, I collect Green River fossils, so uh, Green River Formation. There's several different ones there. Um, let's see. There's a little, uh, little pom-pom crab, they call them. They actually are a little crab that's uh, native to around Hawaii, and they carry a little anemone in each hand. Uh, to to capture food and stuff. So that's kind of a neat little thing. There's a, he's quite a bit bigger now, but a bearded dragon I have. Um, And uh, again, there's a little red eyed tree frog. I love that picture. That's, it's like national geographic in my living room. So, um, here's something you don't see every day, a hermit crab riding, riding a flame scallop. So, right. this is Roxy, the Oxalotl, and she's one of my favorites. Um, I've had her for about probably three years now and they call them a Mexican walking fish, but they're actually, um, uh, uh salamander where the, the, the larval stage never, yeah, morphs into an adult so but she they, they walk and swim around in the bottom of the tank there so um trilobites i've got a lot of trilobites and just other different fossils too so um
0: i love trilobites there's so many different species and i think they they keep finding them isn't that right all these weird and wonderful shapes
1: oh yeah yeah all sorts of them um you know there's there's literally hundreds of, of different types of uh trilobites there and then one of the yes about uh what i'm working on now in fact next week um i'm doing an excavation with uh the new mexico museum of natural history on some tracks that i found and uh we'll bring that up here and um you discovered really- yeah yeah i was fishing with my son um up and i can't even say the name of the lake right now because i'm sworn to secrecy until they uh of course, until yeah. this, the excavation is done here, but I was actually with my son um, fishing up uh, one of the lakes on the mogion Rim here, and uh, I looked down and saw tracks by my feet in the sandstone, and they were real faded. They weren't good ones, but I could see left, right, left, right. And uh, I went home, you know that that night, and we I looked up the ge- geological survey map of the area to see what the layer was, how old it was. I had no idea. But you know, I had the elevation, everything else. I had an altimeter and phone app, so I was able to get the elevation and all that stuff while I was there. Um went home and looked it up and it was Coconino sandstone, which is famous for tracks, but none had been found in this actual region before in that area. And so um doing some studying on it, I went back and I ended up spending about two hundred hours that summer uh, uncovering slabs. This one right here, I only uncovered maybe the bottom foot or so of it there, but, but, um, this particular slab is about 10 feet, uh, wide by about seven feet tall and has uh, probably about a hundred tracks on it. Um, this, uh, slide here has some of the best ones that they've ever found as far as the lower left down there. Um, this one is, uh, we ended up uncovering probably about fifty percent of that. I had seen the partial tracks that were in the upper right there, um, or not not as good tracks there, and, and but just dusting and, and clearing off the, the slabs. I uncovered the rest of it there. There's a close up of the really good ones there. Wow. Um, yeah, and, and they made look like they were made yesterday, um, but we found them. Uh, I found them. That one's there's one that's one centimeter wide. So, have
0: any idea what type of animal?
1: Yeah. I've got that. Um, let's see. That was the next slide. Um, we don't know exactly because there are tracks and we don't have any fossil remains. There are literally no vertebrate remains in the Coconino sandstone. So, um, that's why it's one of my favorite topics to discuss when they people come up with the flood, but, um, this was a shoreline area. Uh, I can actually go to the edge of the mogion Rim, right about two miles from where this lake is, and you can see um, where the road is there, alongside of the rim, as it's going up. You can see alternating layers of sandstone and shale, where the it was near the edge of an inland sea, and and it would recede and. And advance at different times so it was like a shoreline deposit so these are the early mammal like reptiles um there were a lot of different species but again we don't know uh, exactly what it
0: is is that right exactly
1: yeah yeah so so i mean i i could have found tracks of something that was our ancestor actually which is kind of really cool um again they've been found up towards the grand canyon uh they've been found in utah new mexico but not before in this particular region of Arizona um here's a little overview of of several different ones um the ones on the lower right down here those are the ones that uh spencer lucas he's the curator of paleontology for the new mexico museum of natural history he thinks that those could be amphibian they definitely are different than the other tracks they seem to have more of a rounded end to the to the digits there. Um, And if that's true, it would be the first amphibian tracks ever found in the Coconino sandstone. But again, it was shoreline deposit. So it wasn't like they were out in the middle of the desert, you know, so it could be possible that it was amphibians. Um, We're doing the excavation next Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, myself, Spencer Lucas um, from, from New Mexico museum of Natural history. uh, And he's got two uh, paleo track experts coming up from Brazil to help on this. Um, the reason I'm working with them and not the Arizona Museum of Natural History is the the one in New Mexico here has uh, the largest collection of Permian footprints in the world. And Spencer's like the national authority on Permian footprints. So um, I, I actually talked with the local museum here that I work with and they, they recommended I talk to him only because he's... Uh, basically the expert on it could help me out. And once he saw these, he went crazy. He says, oh my gosh, I got, in looking at these pictures, he's got like four papers he thinks he can write, you know, on this just because of the, the different types. Again, I found them up from about one centimeter to three inches wide and four different ichnotaxa, which is what they assign, is instead of species, they assign an ichnotaxa to it. Um, ignology that's what they they use as the term instead of species. So I'm working, uh, you're going to be talking more with him about um, what species we believe it is. And I'm actually writing a book on this, um, writing a, a booklet. Uh, it looks like it's going to be about 60 to 70 pages of use soft cover, a lot of photographs of the tracks, but kind of a basic geological history of the Mogollon Rim area there, the Coconino Sandstone. Um, what, uh, the different types of tracks, you know, everything from the discovery of the tracks to what they could could have been, um, as well as uh, the excavation itself and then uh, ending up in the, the museum at the end. So I, I'm about halfway through with it, and next week uh, I'll be able to, to put in the parts and the images about the excavation, and then within a couple months they should be on display in the museum, so that should be nice.
0: Oh, gosh. Well, congratulations, congratulations for that, Bill. I mean, uh, we're definitely going to keep a close eye on that. And uh, hopefully, I mean, you're going to be publishing that as soon as you can. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, and again, there's the importance about learning about this. I mean, this is in a, 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 a lake that is visited by, uh, you know, hundreds of people every week. I mean, going fishing and people had to have seen this before. I mean, some of them at least, not not all the ones I uncovered. But people had to have seen some of these things. And, and yet, um, without knowing about the history of it and the geology of it and everything they they just walked right on by and this this would have been lost you know i just happened to stumble on some really bad ones and i was interested enough to go out there and and look for more and like i said i spent about 200 hours on it and it just blew me away every time i went up there i kept finding more i found 18 sets of tracks total probably i would say there's because there's so many on that one slab i would say probably between 250 and 300 individual prints i found um, over 18 sets. So, um, and it's all in a quarter mile stretch of this lake. I walked the entire lake and I mean, it's all one area. But but again, without people studying this and the knowledge, having the knowledge to recognize it, um, things like that would be lost. We'd never learn from it. So,
0: Wow. That is really fascinating. And I've got to say, Bill, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us about this, about your work. And I just want to thank you for everything that you do. Um, I'll put links to your website and the YouTube channel in the description below for people to follow up. Um, And lastly, and I always do this in my interviews, uh, if there's anybody who comes across this interview and is still, in this case, reluctant to accept evolution as a fact, what would you say to them right now?
1: Hmm. What would I say if they're still reluctant?
0: I, I, I guess, I guess, you
1: know, look at it with an open mind. And that's the hardest thing to do, I think, you know, because we all have presuppositions. We all, you know, by the time you're my age, I mean, you're kind of set in your ways. I think by the time people are 20, they're pretty much set in their ways. But I mean, I, I just would hope that people would, would actually look at what the other side is saying, look at what, um, you know, the science is telling us. And and leave the creationist literature behind for a while because it, it is designed to, um, you know, counter what the scientists are saying. But it's not based in reality, I mean, to me. So I would just say, you know, please look at it with an open mind and do your own research. Don't rely on what people like Ken Hovind and Cam, Ken Ham are telling you. Absolutely.
0: Bill, thank you once again, and we'll catch up with you hopefully in the very near future.
1: All right, thank you. It's a pleasure.
0: Okay, then, bye for now.
1: Bye bye.